0: But now we need to turn to look at Psalm 126. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless us now as we turn to study your holy word. Father, your word was breathed out by your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, that that selfsame spirit would be with us to give us understanding and spiritual insight and help us, Father, to understand and to apply it to our own living. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you will have noticed that the title of my message this morning is Sheaves, Sheaves? What are sheaves? And the children amongst us this morning might be thinking, sheaves, never heard the word, don't know what it is. And that's understandable, perfectly understandable. In modern-day Australia, wheat oats, barley, whatever the crop is are harvested by big machines and they cut a big swathe in the crop and the seed is separated from the chaff and the seed goes into a truck and the chaff goes into a bin and it's all done simple. Whereas in older times and even in early times in Australia the crop would grow, the wheat, the barley, whatever it was And then it would have to be reaped. And the men, women would use reapers and they would cut it. And the wheat would be gathered into sheaves. And then they would take the sheaves to the place where they were going to um, thresh it and that they would get the seed out from the rest of the the stalk. And they are sheaves. When you gather an armful of those uh, lengths of wheat or barley, they're sheaves. And this psalm talks about sheaves, meaning, of course, the, the crop, the what you have gathered from the crop, the harvest. And it's a great thing because if you've got a harvest, you've got food to eat. And that's always a good thing. Now, we're going to come back to that in a few minutes' time. We'll just leave it there for now. There is a great value in being realistic, It saves the Christian from false expectations. It saves the Christian from a sense of defeat or disillusion that follow when we have false expectations. But we also need to be clear that there is a difference between realism and pessimism. They're not the same thing. Some people who you talk to who say, oh, you know, I'm a very realistic person. What they are really is pessimistic. It's not the same thing. There is a good example of this when the spies, the 12 spies, went into Canaan. They were told to go into Canaan, spy out the land, see what it was like, because this is a land that God had promised to them, and then bring come back and bring a report. And as you know, they came back and they said, oh, there's powerful people there in this country of Canaan. Oh, They're really powerful enemies. I don't think we'll ever be able to overcome them. But the land is rich. The land's fertile. Uh, It's got lovely crops growing everywhere. Now, you see, that's realistic to come back and say, this is what it was like. But 10 of them were pessimists because they said, we've got no hope. No hope. To them, we're just like grasshoppers. They can just squash us. We're done. They were realists, but they were also pessimists. But the other two, Caleb and Joshua, they said, yes, that's true. They're strong. And it's a fertile country. But we've got God, and God has promised it to us. So we go in. The ten won the day, of course, as you know. And because of their pessimism, not their realism, God was angry with them. And in the reading we had from Numbers, God said, you are all going to die in the wilderness. For 40 years, you're going to wander around in the wilderness and you will not see the promised land, but your children will, but not you, because you didn't believe. They were pessimists. So we need to be realistic, but we need to be careful. Because the Christian, simply because of our sin, we're always prone to weakness and to turn realism into pessimism. Now this psalm, Psalm 126, I believe it's of great help to us because we want to see great things happen for the Church of Christ and great good come to our own church, to our own congregation. So let's have a look at this psalm, Psalm 126. First of all, we see that it's written in a time when things were not going well for the people of Israel, when they had not been in a good state. And we're not told exactly what it refers to, whether it refers to the time when they were delivered out of Egypt, um, across the Red Sea, or some other time. We're not told but clearly it had been a time of captivity and a time of hardship, a time of mourning, a time of trial. And if you turn to Psalm 137 sometime and read that through, you'll see how they mourned the time that they were in exile. But then God heard their prayers and heard their their groaning under this terrible burden And refreshment and deliverance came. And they were filled with laughter. It says in this psalm, they were filled with laughter. And they could hardly believe that this had happened. They thought, maybe we're just dreaming it. But they weren't just dreaming it. It was true. And even, it says in this psalm, the nations around them said, look how their Lord has blessed them. The nations saw it. Oh, Don't we long for a time when people around us who are not believers will say of the Christian church, look at what their God has done for them. And then in the next line, they say, look at what God has done for us. They realise the glory, the mercy, the goodness of God, the things he has done for us, the deliverance that he has given to us. And that deliverance encourages them to pray more boldly for more from God. And he concludes the psalm with the means of their success. And he says, They who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who goes forth and weeps bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him. There's that word, sheaves, the sign of prosperity, the sign of blessing from Almighty God. So this is the secret, if you like, an open secret. And as we go through through this, I think you'll see that it's very much counter to a lot of modern thought within the church today. So let's look at it further. The psalm is written when they had been in captivity. Isn't this so much true of the church today? And we think, captivity? Of course we're not in captivity. We can come to church here on a Sunday morning and worship God. Yes, that's true. But just think about the church in Australia today. We are so worried about what the government might do. Will it introduce taxes on us? Will it introduce some sort of identification system on us? What if we discriminate against someone on the basis of their sexuality? We'll be hauled before the court. We're so scared. We're, we're captives. We, we want to show people, we don't discriminate. We love everybody. No matter what your persuasion, oh, we, we, we don't discriminate. Please don't take us to court. So we're in captivity. And what is the answer to this? It's certainly not to tailor our message to suit the world, but the answer is to look back at how God turned the captivity of his people in the past and to learn from that. And let me just mention two. You all know of John Wesley and George Whitefield, How did they change the society of England and of the colonies in what we now call the United States? How did they change that society so that policemen in some villages had no work to do? It was the preaching of God's word, the gospel. That's what changed it, that message that went out. Was there opposition? You bet there was. Some of the bishops turned the people against them That's incredible, isn't it? The bishops of the gospel turning people against these preachers of the gospel. But that's what happened. Did it stop Whitfield? Did it stop Wesley? No. Because they had, like Daniel, they had a higher authority. And that was Almighty God. And of course, to go back even further, we have the time of Martin Luther, who, as he read through the Psalms, would you believe... The Psalms, he came to understand the gospel, the free offer of the gospel that God makes to fallen human beings. And then as he studied Galatians and Romans, it became clearer and clearer to him. And he realized that this was not what the church was preaching. And people said to him, oh, you need to be careful. You need to be careful because, you know, if the hierarchy of the church get hold of what you're teaching, you'll be in big, big trouble. What did Martin Luther say? He said, oh, I'd better keep quiet then. I'll just keep it secret. No, he didn't, did he? He proclaimed it loudly and clearly, and he wrote it, and he wrote tract after tract and booklet after booklet. And in those days, of course, printing had been invented, and these things went all over Europe. But what did he do? He taught, he preached, the word of God, the gospel. But it must be done in the manner of the last two verses of this psalm, the verses that say, he who goes forth. Now, remember, it's talking here originally about farming. And the farmer does not sit at home and say... Lord, please give me a really big harvest this year because, you know, my family's growing and I need more food. He doesn't do that. Of course not. The farmer goes out and he takes a seed and he sows the seed and it's an onerous job. He's got to walk up and down, up and down, up and down. I remember once um, my father and a mate of his, they were growing pawpaws at Sunnybank, probably where there's a Chinese restaurant now, um, and they had this big um, rotary hoe. And they said, Lindsay, you could do this. And it was all broken country and it had big clods of grass in it. And I thought, oh, well, okay. So I'm going up and down with this big rotary hoe. And I'm only a kid. And... Um, Up and down, up and down, over these big clods of ground and grass, up and down, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Man, was it hard work? I was sick of it by the time we finished. So it's work. It's work. And we can forget that. We can forget that working for Jesus Christ is work, it's labour. Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world. And the apostles, of course, travelled around with the message. We are told in the book of Acts that after the persecution and the Christians were scattered, what did they do? They stay in their own little homes, keeping quiet about everything? No, they didn't. They were scattered and they went about preaching the word. And Paul, of course, is perhaps... The greatest example of, that we have of a person who was a traveller for the gospel. Now, perhaps we are asking, well, you know, why is it that Christianity is such a a missionary religion? Why is it that we're always under this um, this teaching to go out? And of course, it's because it's the nature of God. God saw the wretchedness of mankind. He saw what had happened after Adam and Eve rebelled. He saw the hurt, the trouble, the chaos that had come into this world. So he sent his prophets and he sent his priests. And he sent his law and his commandments. And he sent a special people, the people of Israel, to be his envoys. And he sent then his only son. You see, that's why we are under obligation to go out like the farmer. We are sent out. God knew that mankind would never turn back to him and say, Oh, we've made such a mistake. We've done things. Oh, they're so wrong. Lord, we're turning back to you now. He knew that would never happen because of the sinfulness of man's heart. He knew that he had to go out looking, finding and bringing them back to him. So that's why Christianity is a missionary religion and that's why we too are called to go out just like the farmer. Now, One of the things that's very, very important for any preacher is not to place upon people burdens that cannot be borne. So I just need to say a few things. You might say, well, certainly I can't go. I've got a young family. I've got to look after them. True, you can't go in the sense of going to another country, but you can go to your relatives to your neighbours, to your workmates, to your own children. There's an important mission field right there. Why ignore these mission fields that are right in front of you? Again, you might say, well, I'm too feeble, I'm too old, I'm too ill, I can't do anything, I can't go. That may be perfectly true, but you can pray. And by your prayer, you can go to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? You can pray for someone in Vanuatu. You can pray for somebody working amongst Aboriginal people in the Kimberleys. You can pray for people in the Middle East. Remember how Paul constantly asked people to pray for him. He knew that the faithful, persevering prayers of God's people gave success to his endeavours. If you can't go... Send your prayers. Pray for your elders, your ministers, your leaders, your missionaries. And let me tell you just a quick story. Elizabeth and I once knew a an elderly woman at a church where I was an assistant at South Brisbane. And this woman was very, very shy. She was an elderly spinster. I know we don't use that word much these days, but she was And she was very, very shy. She used to play the bells. They had bells up in the top of the church. And she had a keyboard and she used to play the bells. And if someone sort of walked to the door and looked in, she would stop. She was so shy. And you might think, well, what can a woman like that do to take the gospel? She found something she could do. She used to buy tracts or booklets, leaflets, and she would go to all the telephone boxes in the area. Now, of course, they were the days when we had telephone boxes. We hardly have any these days. And she would just put some leaflets in each telephone box in that area. Then a week or so later, she would... Whoops. I'm trying to destroy your equipment. She would come back perhaps a week or two later and just check... And if they'd all gone, she would replenish the supply. That was something she could do. And she believed the Lord had led her to do that. So, you know, there is always something that we can do to help spread the word. Now, let's think about the farmer again. The farmer goes out and he weeps. He weeps because the farmer always sows with a certain sense of trepidation. And that's true still today. Will the rains come? Will we have another period of drought? Will storms come? Will hail come just as all the fruits on the tree? He is dependent on so many things, and so are we. So we need to remember that the farmer goes out weeping. We need to go out recognising that there is so much against the reception of the message and we've got to depend not on ourselves but on God. We do depend on ourselves so much. We use gimmicks, we use stunts, we use entertainments to to promote the gospel. Elizabeth and I knew a woman once who used to take RE at the local school and she always had a big class because she gave them buzz bars. And that's how she got them in. And people thought, she is such a good RE teacher. She's got kids flocking to her class. Can you imagine Presbyterian children preferring a Mars bar to me? We we feel we've got it perfectly under control. There's an arrogance about it. We think so long as we follow certain procedures, we know we will have success. And there are some evangelists who can predict beforehand what percentage of people will come forward. That doesn't fit the picture, does it, of the farmer going out, weeping. If only we were realistic, if only we saw the forces against us, the sinfulness of the human heart, the opposition of Satan, our own failings, our own hindrances... If only we were realistic, then we would go forth weeping, weeping in prayer to God for his blessing, his power, his spirit, aware of all the possibilities of failure unless he is with us. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Galatia that I groan in travail for you. He didn't have some sort of a quick fix. He groaned. He said to the Corinthian church, I weep over you because of their divisions and the immorality that they were allowing. He said, I weep over you. We might think, well, modern today, we've got business methods that we can apply that will succeed But the way to success is to realise that in ourselves we are nothing. We need to realise that we must go forth weeping. And then he says, bearing precious seed. We must realise that the only satisfactory answer to man's problems is that seed. The seed of God, the word of God, the scriptures, that gospel message. It is the gospel that is the only message that reconciles man to God. And then, having been reconciled to God, he is then reconciled to his fellow man. And the hatred, the division breaks down. And one of the things that was a feature of the early church was the different nationalities that met together to worship God in the name of Jesus Christ. It's only the gospel that gives peace and forgiveness of sin. Only the gospel that restores man to his proper place before his God. And once this truth takes possession of a man or transformation is so profound that there's a new creation. And that's what it is. No wonder it's called the cut it in half and to see, oh, what's in this? So the seed of the gospel, the scripture warns us, do not add to that word. Do not subtract from that word. Lectures at Eunice edition of this textbook because you've got to spend $60 to buy it. Something or adding something to that word to make it more palatable to modern people. We must know it. We must study it. We must rejoice in it. We must store it in our hearts. We must live by it. And that is the glorious promise. Because it says in the very last line, shall come again with rejoicing. Or some translations have doubtless shall come again with rejoicing. What a great word that is, doubtless. It's often the case that when we go to a task, whatever it is, even if it's something in the church for Christ's sake, and we go lighthearted and thinking this is going to be a pushover they're the ones who come back chastened. But those who go with trepidation, realising their own weakness, and go out recognising that they need the blessing of God, they're the ones who come rejoicing. Remember that the scripture says that God sets himself against the proud, but exalts the humble. So it is not those who go about the church's business in a light-hearted, easy manner who come home rejoicing. Not those full of bravado and confidence in themselves, but those who know the opposition of the world, the realists and their own weakness, but not pessimists because they know the promises of God and they come home rejoicing. Other people get sick of it. Because things don't turn out immediately the way that pleases them and they move on. But see this promise, doubtless. They will come again with rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. Bringing the fruits of their work, of their spreading of the gospel. Jesus came under great hardship. He was attacked, he was laughed at. He was scorned, he came in a sense weeping, he wept over Jerusalem. But the father was pleased to give him countless numbers as his inheritance. Paul arrived in Corinth, he'd been harassed by the Jews in Thessalonica, imprisoned in Philippi, called a babbler in Athens. He came to Corinth, he was dispirited, and God said to Paul, Be not afraid, but speak, and do not hold your peace, for I am with you, and no man will hurt you, for I have many people in this city. What a promise to Paul, and he was there for 18 months, and a great church built up. But notice that the sheaves come to the farmer who goes and sows and is faithful and persevering. Doubtless. How gracious, how loving, how condescending of our God to put in this word that is so full of such assurance and comfort and inspiration, the word doubtless. Without doubt, he will come rejoicing. Without doubt, he will bring his sheaves with him. So my friends, take heart from this little word doubtless. Have you wept over some family member? You've shared the gospel with them on many an occasion, but to no avail, remember the word, doubtless. Monica prayed for her ungodly son, Augustine, for 30 years, and he became one of the greatest men that the Christian church has ever seen. Do you weep over some of your workmates who seem committed to making a debacle of their life? No matter what you say, remember the word doubtless. Keep on praying. Keep on sowing the seed. Do you ever weep over the people around this church building here? We have the words of life. We have the worship of God. They hear about Jesus Christ and yet people seem so uncaring as if there never was a God and there never will be a judgment. Remember the word doubtless. Never give in to Satan. Never say, ah, it's all been in vain. I'll just hold my tongue. I'll just shut up. I'm not going to say any more. It's just all a waste. No, no, no. Remember the great promise that our God gives to us here at the end of Psalm 126. He that goes forth, who goes out and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless us as we read through this Psalm 126 and we see, Lord, the great promise that you make to us there. Father, bless us, we pray. Encourage our hearts. Help us to ask, Lord, what can I do?